Hey, welcome to In Doubt. This week on the show, we talk with Dr. Michael Kruger on deconversion stories and progressive Christianity. If a young person today is going to have a coherent Christian worldview, and it's going to be able to be the kind of worldview that can withstand the progressive movement of, of our modern world, you've got to be standing on something strong than just good feelings or your own emotions or your own zeal. You've got to have a truth foundation, and that's only going to be found in God's Word. Hey, it's Isaac here. Hope you're all well. Hope you're having a good summer as we're approaching August pretty soon, which is crazy. Anyways, I'm glad you chose to hang out with us for the next half hour on In Doubt as we have the privilege of chatting with Dr. Michael Kruger, as I just said. I'll explain who he is more in just a moment, but the subject in which we're discussing is uh, deconversion stories and then progressive Christianity in general. You know, you might be well aware of one or both of those things or not. So this conversation will hopefully fill you in and then help you draw closer to God and his word. So here's my conversation with Dr. Michael Kruger. With me today is Dr. Michael Kruger. Michael is president and Samuel C. Patterson professor of New Testament and early Christianity at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. Michael is married, he's written many books, he's lectured at various places, and also serves part-time as an associate pastor. So it's good to have you today, Michael. Thanks so much. Good to be on the program. The first thing we want to ask is simply, who who are you? Because you're going to be obviously kind of educating us a little bit about some of these issues. But before we hear you educating us, let us know a little bit about who you are, maybe how you came to Jesus. Yeah, well, my current sketch you laid out just a second ago, which is that I'm the president and New Testament professor here at Reformed Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina, and have been here for about 17 years. Um, as far as uh, my background, um, I became a, a believer at a young age because I was blessed to grow up in a Christian home and heard the gospel at a young age. And I uh, have believing parents and a believing brother and thankful for a Christian family. I never really went to uh, a Christian college or university. Um, I, I graduated from the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill and then on to seminary and Ph.D. work, but was, was grateful to grow up in a, in a Christian family. That's awesome. That's so good. And you've written a lot. You've done a lot of uh, kind of deep theological work, especially when it comes to early Christianity. But anyways, you, you wrote an article on your site in February, uh, which got some traction. I think Tim Challies posted on his blog, which gets sent out to tons of people. Um, but it was about the power of deconversion stories. So firstly, what is a deconversion story? Yeah, the, I think the, the best way to explain it is to kind of think of it as the opposite of a conversion story. So if we all know what conversion stories are. Conversion stories are when there's someone that, that sort of goes before the church or maybe fellow believers and tells how they came to a, a fresh and new understanding of the truth of the gospel, the truth of the Bible, and the, the good news about Jesus Christ. And, and conversion stories, as we know, can be very powerful. They, they remind people that, that this is happening to real folks, and that you can hear people's individual story, and it can be very impactful. What I, what I coined the term the deconversion story, I usually use that term just to speak of a similar phenomenon that goes in the opposite direction. And this would be a person who comes forward in some fashion and publicly declares the opposite scenario, which is they've moved away from historical Orthodox Christianity and now have found a new set of beliefs in the opposite direction. So now they no longer believe what they used to believe. They no longer hold to the doctrines they used to hold to, and they no longer have uh, the same worldview they used to have. Now, this this looks very different depending on the person, and, and there's a lot of examples of that out there in the world today. Um, it can be a very dramatic deconversion story where someone 
leaves Christianity altogether and goes to agnosticism. And Bart Ehrman would be a good example of that. It uh, can also be a, a different kind of deconversion story. It could be a deconversion away from a certain brand of Christianity where they leave what they deem at least to be sort of a narrow version of Christianity and a person embraces a much more progressive or broad version of Christianity. Now, that could be example, example by people like Jen Hatmaker or Peter Enns or, or uh, Rob Bell. Um, now, they may not agree with that language because they would still see themselves as Christians, so they don't think they'd be converted. But I, I'd use, I use the term rather broadly just to capture this idea of transitioning worldviews in the opposite direction than typically are used to. So, okay, you know, if I wasn't a Christian, I became a Christian dramatically, I, there's a reason why I want to go and share my conversion, my, my testimony, because I'm so excited and I believe now that Jesus is the only way and I want people to be saved. So what makes uh, these people, whatever kind of deconversion story they have, what makes them want to publicly share the fact that, yay, now I'm out of this? Well, you know, this is actually one of the reasons I, I wrote my article, because I think there's, to some extent, a new phenomenon happening in, in the last 20 years in our country. And it's not really new. There's always been deconversion stories on one level, always people saying, hey, here's how I stopped believing. But typically they're not so public and typically they're not so evangelistic about it. Most people who stop believing just kind of move on. But there's a whole new crop now of folks who feel like when they stop believing, they feel like they need to tell the world about it um, and take as many people with them as they can. And so there's an evangelistic side of this, which is why I use the term deconversion, because it's almost like an attempt to convert people. They want to evangelize people, not not towards Christianity, but away from it. Now, I can't psychologize on why this why people are motivated to do this. I think there's many motivations. I think some people think they found the truth finally, and they're just eager to tell people about it and debunk what they think are lies. And so they think evangelicals are believing lies, and they want to help people believe the truth. So there's some of that going on. I imagine psychologically we can hypothesize that some people maybe feel better about their deconversion if other people deconvert too, and you could sort of, you know, try to read into that. We just simply don't know why people do it, but there does seem to be a trend. And I think that trend is probably heightened by the rise of social media. You know, now everybody can tell their story and everybody can hear it. So, you know, with the help of social media, you know, the, the, the deconversion stories are just much louder than they would have been in years gone by. Yeah, definitely. And that, that totally makes sense when it comes to social media, especially. Now, you, you briefly mentioned uh, Jen Hatmaker, and I, you know, she was sort of the, um, the, the starting point of your article. So what did you come to find, I guess, in the deconversion story along with the others, like you mentioned, Peter Enns and Bart Ehrman and things like that? And you, know, you talk about these five steps. I think that'd be interesting for people who haven't read your article to, uh, for you to share some of what you found. Yeah. So when, when I heard Jen Hatmaker's interview, uh, I was struck by a number of things. And this was a podcast that appeared a number of months ago, and she's given many of these. But this one was sort of making the rounds, and I, I listened to it. And I was struck by a number of things. One thing I was struck by is she's a very uh, easy person to listen to. And she seems like a sweet person and, and, and friendly and, and likable. And, and I got to say that even as I listened to her, I thought, wow, I, can, I, really, I really can understand her appeal because she, she definitely comes across positively and likable. And I'm sure she is a sweet person. And, and, and my post had nothing to do with her on a personal level. But what I did notice as I listened to the podcast was not just how persuasive it was and compelling when you listen to it, but also it did follow what I call sort of a, a deconversion playbook. And when I say de deconversion playbook, I'm not suggesting there's some sort of wooden thing they all do and they've all collaborated or something like this. But I do think you can observe some trends. And so what I laid out in my article and is simply what I saw as five things she did 
in her interview, um, in her deconversion story that, that a lot of other folks do in their deconversion stories. And I think there's some validity to pointing that out. You know, that the, some people thought that, that by pointing that out, somehow I was, you know, not giving credit to her, her personal account, but actually that, that's not true. I, I really am listening to her personal account. I just think that there's common ground with her personal account and others as well. Now the five steps I mentioned in my article online, I, I won't, say everything about each one, but but the five steps are, number one, first talk about the, your negative past in, in fundamentalism. In other words, talk about how your fundamentalist past was narrow and constricting and limiting and, and you really weren't finding answers. And then two, um, you know, you kind of position yourself as someone who bravely stood up against it and that you you were courageous enough to, to fight the evangelical establishment and, and stand for truth. And then you sort of lay out how you got punitively uh, pushed back for that. And so there's a little bit of a per- portraying yourself as the as the martyr there that I think is interesting. And Jen Hatmaker's not the first one to do that. Like I said, others have, have, have portrayed themselves in the same way, which is, hey, I'm just courageously standing up against evangelicalism, and now I'm, look what's happening to me. Thirdly, you, you tend to portray your old group as dogmatic and yourself just as a as a seeker. You're the one that's just on a journey. You're the one that's just open-minded. You're just trying to find truth. That's all. Um, and so there's a sense in which it's the other people who are making dogmatic truth claims, not me. And I think that's problematic because I think even in the deconversion stories, there's all kinds of, of very serious truth claims being made. Uh, number four is you insist you're still biblical, that you, your, your theology is, is, is even more biblical than the people you left. Um, now, obviously, not all deconversion stories include this element because someone like Bart Ehrman, who went even further, would deny the Bible altogether. But if you're a, a Rob Bell or Jen Hatmaker, you're going to still at least claim the Bible. And so you sort of come up with your own explanation for why your new views fit with the Bible. And then fifthly and finally, um, you sort of uh, lay out the sort of character flaws uh, with your old group and, and, and uplift the better character you found in the new group you're in. And, uh, you know, this is this is something I've just seen across the board. And so I wrote the article thinking, hey, you know, this this can be laid out. People can look at this and analyze it and see if they, they see this in the stories they're hearing. Absolutely. And I, I thank you for doing that. I think it's important. And and something you said earlier on that I just kind of made me think as you were talking, you know, I, you, you mentioned that, you know, listening to Jen Hapmaker, it was it was pleasant. She was easy to listen to. And, and you know, I think about uh, Rob Bell. I also think of someone like uh, Brian McLaren and all these these people, they're very easy to listen to. They have a good rhetoric. They're good at public speaking. They're very convincing. And it's almost as if that these, some of these deconversion stories are just louder because people actually want and are convinced because of just the fact that they're really good at public speaking. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, you could say the same thing for Bart Ehrman as well. He's very compelling. And of course, um, I think there's compelling folks on, on the other side too. And certainly, you know, being compelling or not being compelling isn't necessarily the determiner of whether someone is right or wrong or true or false. But I do note that because I think a lot of people are uh, ones who listen to people like her and say, wow, she sounds so so much like I would love to sit down and have coffee with her, and I probably would like it in a way that she would be my best friend. And, and I think, you know, I, I give her credit for that. I think she probably is a very sweet and loving and, and, and kind person, and I think there's probably the kind of person that, that, that I and others would certainly enjoy getting to know personally. And of course, my article wasn't really trying to diagnose her personally. It was more trying to diagnose the, the methodology of the deconversion story. 
Of course. Yeah, definitely. Now, you mentioned in actually another article you've written, a book by Jay Gresham Machen, which a lot of people haven't heard of. Uh, and, you know, it's this book that he's written called Christianity and Liberalism, uh, written in 1923, so many, many years ago. Now, you say that his critiques of Christian liberalism at that time are relevant for today. So I'm wondering if you could sort of briefly summarize um, kind of his argument. Yeah, so Machen wrote this book in the early 20th century, and uh, it really is a paradigmatic book, and I think should be required reading for, for anybody heading into ministry. And I think just about any Christian would benefit from reading it. In fact, I've started a new series on my website um, where I tap into Machen quite a bit in, a, in another series on progressive Christianity I've started. And that's a, another conversation for another day. But here's the, the upshot of what he argued. He argued that, that liberal Christianity in his day um, is, is got a set of beliefs, and that set of beliefs is laid out fairly plainly. They... They, they view Jesus as merely a good moral teacher, and it's moralistically conditioned. They think the Bible is not the inspired word of God, and so on. And what he argues at the end is that liberal Christianity is not just another denominational view. It's not just a version of Christianity, but it's an entirely separate religion. He, he argues it's an entirely other religion other than Christianity. And so there's Christianity, and then there's liberalism. And, and there's, not, there's not anything called liberal Christianity, if you will, because that just is an oxymoron. And what I like about the book is that it really just lays out um, that, that the, the, the trend of liberal Christianity that we always see around us and have for generations. And in my new blog series, I point out the fact that, that, that it's still around now and that, you know, whenever someone embraces liberal Christianity, especially if they're young, you, you get the impression that they think they're discovering something new or that they're doing something new. And, and what, what's good about Machen's book is, is he reminds us, no, this has been, this has been the message of, of liberal Christianity for years. Um, and, and arguably not just in the 20th century or even the 19th century, but all the way back um, and long before that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting. I'm wondering if you could sort of speak into this a bit, Michael. But, you know, I grew up in a Christian home uh, in an urban city in Canada, uh, very well aware of, you know, North American church and things like that. And it wasn't until uh, through my Bible college years that I finally kind of realized that there was this other kind of idea of Christianity called liberalism and progressive Christianity and things like that. And I just, I think there's actually a lot of people, uh, I mean, obviously you're so, you've soaked in this stuff a lot, so it's very real for you, but I think there are a lot that are kind of blind to it, just like how there's so many people blind to the whole, you know, God's sovereignty and free will debate. Um, can you just sort of give us an idea of how much liberalism has actually affected the North American church? Oh, yeah. I mean, golly, where do you begin? I mean, it's such a big uh, topic. I mean, you could point to all the mainline denominational declines. So whether it's the PCUSA or the United Methodist Church or any of the other major or Episcopal Church, these major declines are all uh, due to theological liberalism. And so you can trace this over the last hundred years. And those denominational declines are not only um, evident theologically, they're evident numerically. They're they're losing uh, folks in droves um, all around the country, and you you can tie it directly to this kind of liberal thought. The other thing that you see is that the the type of uh, liberal view of Christianity that's in these mainline churches is the same thing being taught in universities today. And so, you know, we send off young folks to college or to a university. They need to know that this is going to be the type of thing they're going to hear. They've got to be ready to answer it. They've got to be prepared to deal with it. Um, unfortunately, lots of times when we send off kids to college, we, we never even have introduced them to worldview issues. We've only introduced them to, to, to moral issues. We've, we've made sure that they don't do this and they don't do that, and they live like this and not like that. And, and, and by the way, that's important. I mean, how people behave matters. Of course, that's important, but that can't be the only thing we're doing to prepare people. And so I think 
we need to give folks a grounding of what theological liberalism is so they know why they believe what they believe and they can answer the questions when they're asked of them. Yeah, absolutely. That's so good. Now, um, a few, I guess, uh, months ago now, I had a conversation with Dr. Owen Strand. Uh, we both watched the new Rob Bell documentary called The Heretic. And as we were talking about it and kind of about progressive Christianity, uh, we can't, we kind of came to this understanding that many Christian liberals sort of boast of this more authentic, this more beautiful, more socially aware, more even mysterious and even mystical kind of side of faith. And obviously, when it comes to millennials, which uh, we deal with a lot at In Doubt, uh, this obviously tracks a lot of millennials because they are kind of sick of that uh, you know, uh, they 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 don't they don't want to confine themselves to just naturalism and atheism. They, there is a hunger for something more, and this sort of Christian liberalism offers this very you know quote unquote mysterious faith. Now, as you kind of consider that, what what do you, what would you say to someone who's sort of dipping their toes into progressive Christianity and hopes to find something beautiful and real? Yeah, there's a, there's a there's a quest in our in our next generation. Uh, it's called millennials, and then even after that, the, the, the next generation after that, for authenticity and and uh, something they call real, um, something that matters. Um, there's an irony to this new movement, um, if you call it a movement at all, and that is they're very moralistic. And what I mean by that is, you said it a minute ago, they're not just going to be the typical atheist agnostic naturalist. They they have some aspects of that, but they, they very much think they need to go out and, and do good and stop evil and save the world and you know, help the environment and do away with 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 social ills and and so forth. And uh, and what's interesting about that is I think they don't realize that they need a worldview that that can support those ambitions. They need a they need a coherent worldview that can account for morality and and ethical norms. And what they don't realize is that liberal Christianity cannot provide it. Um, liberal Christianity ultimately undercuts morals because it makes morals arbitrary and relativistic. And so what I would say to a group like that is. Is that they're they're internally inconsistent. They're, they're they're they have a worldview that undercuts their quest for moral uh, causes, and that some of their moral causes may be good moral causes, and and we're not even necessarily disputing that, um, although there's a larger conversation about some of those things. But let's imagine that some of their moral causes are good ones. That you know we we think that as Christians, but we have a reason for thinking so. Why why do the progressives have a reason for thinking something's a good moral cause if there's no absolute norms in the universe and in Christianity, or rather morals are relativistic, and so. I find this sort of uh, intellectual schizophrenia there. They want to have their you know, postmodern cake and eat it too, if you will. And I want to say to them, look, if you want morals, you've got to ditch your postmodernity. It's one or the other. Um, you, can't have, you can't have both of them. Yeah, that's good. Well, let, let's let's try an example here as we begin to sort of wrap up a conversation. But I was recently doing some research when it comes to millennials and how they they give uh, like uh, give to charity and nonprofits in Canada. And I found that more millennials... Uh, will volunteer rather than give uh, to many different organizations. And the top two sort of uh, uh, subjects of, of volunteer work that they do is one is poverty work, and the other one is for churches and different parachurch organizations. Now, when it comes to poverty, how would you, as a Orthodox, Evangelical, Protestant, you know, Bible-believing uh Christian, how would you sort of be able to portray to a millennial who has this longing to volunteer and help out with something like poverty, how would you be able to say that the Christian worldview can actually help be the best foundation for your work to help, uh, you know, alleviate poverty? Yeah, well, there's all kinds of ways to slice that up. I mean, the fundamental issue I'd want to hit on is why does it matter whether people are in poverty? Why should I be concerned at all? Uh, what I find remarkable about postmodernists is that they seem to treat humans as if they have an inherent dignity and worth. 
um, as if they're more important than the animals, um, as if they require and, and demand from us that we treat them well and, and find food for them to eat. Um, okay, I was, I as a Christian agree with all those things. I do think humans should be treated well and, and, and with dignity, but I have a reason in my worldview for thinking that, namely that Christians are made in the image of God, that God set apart uh, humanity as a distinctive part of his creation, that you should treat them with dignity and worth and should not harm but should help them. Um, and so I have a reason as a Christian why I should care for the poor. What would be the reason for the progressive? Um, you know, he's got no sort of sense of necessarily a biblical revelation, what makes humans distinct from animals. He's got no sense of biblical revelation to tell him what counts as good and bad and right and wrong. Um, why, why even care about the, the poor? Why would poverty be, even be an issue? I suppose they could try some evolutionary answer, like, well, if I help the poor, then, then, then you know, I, I preserve the species and, and we all can progress. But why should I care about preserving the species? And it just backs the question up one notch. Um, so what I want to encourage someone to think about is that, is that you, you need something more fundamentally grounded if you're going to have a care for these things. Um, the, the last thing I'd mention is, okay, let's imagine you, you, you go out as a progressive and you care for the poor and you help in the soup kitchen and you build a house for Habitat for Humanity. What about people's eternal souls? Is that an issue? Uh, in other words, you're caring for them in the present, but what about the future? You think they, they live forever? If so, where are they gonna live? Do you think there's a reward in heaven or a punishment in hell? Do you think that what you tell people matters for their eternal destiny? I mean, it's, it's hard to take seriously someone who's concerned for caring for the poor um, if they're not also concerned for caring for something much more important than that, which is their eternal destiny, where they're gonna end up forever. So once again, um, there's this sort of very narrow, tight, um, help the poor now for who knows what reason, when I think it just doesn't work on the on the progressive worldview. Yeah, and you know, as you say that, it just makes me think that the Christian, the true evangelical Christian, historical Christian foundation uh, that then stems out to do things like social justice work and all that stuff, um, in the long term, it is the most uh, beautiful and correct uh, foundation, because I think a, a lot of times, because what you pretty much just did was you made it logically make sense that you know, you would do, uh, you know, good poverty work because of your Christian foundation. It makes logical sense in the long term. But, you know, for many millennials, I mean, they're just thinking about then and there and doing a good work just because feels good in the moment, but they're not thinking long term. So I think that's really important how you kind of phrase that. Now, the the last thing, Michael, as we, as we wrap up here, um, and I like to ask this question to uh, different Christian leaders and thinkers who have done a lot of work uh, in regards to history and kind of looking at culture today. When you consider the general Christian young adult uh, landscape, and I know you're in America, but a lot of American attitudes and beliefs does trickle into Canada. When you consider the general Christian young adult landscape, what do you think is the most important thing that you uh, would say to them, what they should know, what they should believe, what they should really grab onto or let go of? Well, that's a big question. There's a lot of great things out there. I mean, for anybody who knows my own research and writing and work, it's no surprise that I think one of the fundamental foundations for young Christians today to grapple with and get right is the, the proper role of the authority and inspiration of Scripture in their life. Um, you know, every one of these things we can trace back to a, a misappropriation of or a rejection of the Bible, um, that people don't believe it's true. They don't believe it's reliable. They think there's other options that are much better. They think that you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to. Um, they, they think that, that um, the Bible's mistaken and flawed and that we should move on. Whatever it might be, um, if, if a young person today is going to have a, a coherent Christian worldview and it's going to be able to be the kind of worldview that can withstand the, the progressive uh, sort of movement of, of, of our modern world, you've got to be standing on something strong than just 
good feelings or your own emotions or your own zeal. You've got to have a, a truth foundation. And that's that's only going to be found in God's word. So I, I continue to push people back to reevaluating and, and shoring up their foundations, namely scripture. And so, you know, I, you mentioned my website, Cannon Fodder, a minute ago, and that side I've put together um, intentionally try to help people think through the Bible and where it came from and why we can trust it. And, um, you know, as you noted, the, the, the title Cannon Fodder is Cannon with one N. Uh, so it's the biblical canon, not the not the fire, the cannonball canon. So if people don't get that, they'll miss the pun. But uh, either way, uh, I, I can point people to that as a, as a place to learn more. That's so good. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Michael. I really appreciate your time and your wisdom uh, with us today. If you're listening and you are intrigued of what we've talked about, and you know, uh, Michael's already made mention of this new series that he's started, which I've read the first one and it's it's very interesting. Um, I would encourage you to check out uh, Cannon Fodder. It was michaeljkruger.com. Uh, you can go there and you can just find an abundance of, of resources, of these articles. You can listen to different sermons and lectures that Michael has done. And uh, yeah, read the blogs, check out his books, everything like that. So that link will also be at our episode podcast page for you to enjoy. But anyways, I want to thank you again, Michael, and I hope to have you back on again. Thanks. Good to be with you. That was Dr. Michael Kruger talking about deconversion stories and progressive Christianity. Again, all the links that were mentioned in our conversation, including his articles and his website, will be on the episode podcast page for your enjoyment, so make sure to head there. You know, it's interesting what Michael said at the end there about the fact that, you know, the evangelical Christian worldview provides a sure and rock-solid foundation of truth that can be and is the reason for all of life. Now, you know, I or Michael can't prove to you that the Bible is the word of God, if that's something you maybe are skeptical about. You do need faith. However, learning about the Bible generally can be encouraging and it can build a stronger faith. Now, personally, I just want to be clear that my faith isn't based on evidence that, say, a naturalist would want or need to, you know, to deem something as true or not true. So even though, for example, the number of ancient manuscripts of the New Testament, uh, you know, far outnumber many other historical writings around that time, it doesn't mean they're true. I get that. But it is interesting. You know, there are over 5,000 manuscripts, different writers, different times, different purposes, all written within a century and a half that don't claim fiction, fable, or myth. They all point to one true gospel. And on top of that, I mean, think about it. Archaeology has never disproved anything said in the Bible. And I know that doesn't, you know, prove that it's the word of God, but it's still something to consider and be aware of. And, you know, as for the content of these manuscripts that we have, you have passages like Luke 1, 1 to 4, which emphasizes the exactness and, you know, orderly account that it gives. It's amazing to see how much of what Luke writes is true in regards to historical governors and places and things like that. So you can look at Luke 3, 1 to 3 and see that. You know, the writers of the New Testament claim a kind of certainty in their writing. And I understand that even if all of this is true, we're still left with faith that it is the word of God. Now, it could be, and I believe it is, completely true and historically accurate, but we're still left questioning its divinity. You know, at the end of the day, after listing, you know, many historical reasons for the Bible's reliability, you know, that won't mean much to someone who has a clear criteria of what's true based in, again, something like naturalism. But if you stretch your mind to accept the supernatural, then I believe you're not too far from believing in the Bible's divinity, the fact that the Bible is the inspired word of God. Anyways, if In Doubt is a ministry that you'd like to support financially, it's really easy to do so. We've just started our new fiscal year, and as you know, Everything we do at Endowed is given out for free. This radio podcast show, obviously, our articles, our videos, our Bible studies, and our live events. 
but it costs us money to create and distribute them. So if you feel led to give, just click the donate button and follow the simple instructions at indout.ca if you live in Canada or indout.com if you live in the States. Also, make sure to check us out online and follow us. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This is just a great way for you to connect with us, talk about what we're talking about. Let us know who you are. Let us know your story. It'd be awesome. Well, I'm Isaac, and next week we have the awesome privilege of chatting with renowned theologian Dr. Wayne Grudem, who's just written tons of books on theology. And he's just written now a mammoth book on Christian ethics, which we'll be looking at next week. See you then. Indoubt Ministries exists to bring a biblical perspective into the relevant issues of life and faith that young adults face every day. For more information, check out indoubt.ca if you live in Canada and indoubt.com if you live in the U.S. Thank you.